Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob was given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband to come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we give thanks to God for his word. If you have your Bible, then I'd love you to to follow along with us in John chapter 4 as we work through these verses together this morning. If you remember back to the last time uh, that I was preaching through the start of chapter 3 in John's gospel, we talked about what what needed to happen, what needed to happen for us to enter the kingdom of God. 
What needed to happen for us to enter the kingdom of God? And John chapter 3, at the start of it, it is really, really clear. It says, you must be born again, okay? You must be born again. There is no other way in. Now, this isn't a, a command to do something, as if you could bring about this being born again-ness. You know, it's something that comes from above. It's something that God must do. God must be the one to change your heart, to raise a cold, stony, dead heart, and to bring it to life. Because left, left on your own, you would never choose to follow Jesus. You'd never come to spiritual life. But to get into the kingdom, you must be born again. There's no other way in. And John is saying this. John is saying, if you're not a born-again Christian, well, then you're not a Christian, okay? You can't be a Christian if you are not born again. And then I'll take us through the next part of chapter 3, including that really, really, really well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now this verse builds on what we see at the start of the chapter. Often we kind of detach this verse from the rest of chapter three and don't see what comes before, but it's really important to look at what comes before. Uh, chapter three starts by saying you must be born again. Well, how do we know if someone is born again? Well, ask the question, do they believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this is how we know if, if someone has been born again. We ask the question, do they believe? And if they do, well then it's evidence, isn't it? It's evidence that this born againness has taken place, that they have been born again, born from above. And so the, today the question is, is slightly different, okay? That was a question of how do you get in? You must be born again. And today the question is more of a who? Who can get in? Who can get into this kingdom of God? What, what type of person might we find in the kingdom of God? That's what we're going to be thinking about today. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do that. Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word. And so, Lord, I pray now that your word and your spirit would be at work, changing hearts, shaping each of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard a line like this before. Maybe it was talking about an individual, James or John or Mary or Martha or whoever the person was, and someone said this about them. They said... They would make a good Christian. They would make a good Christian because they almost live like one already, okay? Maybe you've heard that said. Maybe you've even said it of someone, yourself. You look at someone and you think, Do you know what? It looks like, it looks like they would make a good Christian. There isn't too much change that would need to happen for them to become a Christian. Well, what's happening there is that we are missing the gravity of our natural spiritual state. Ephesians really helps us to understand it. It says that our, our spiritual state is one of death, okay? That's our natural state, death, being dead in our sin. And so spiritually speaking, 
the idea of someone being more dead than another person doesn't really make much sense. It's kind of a bizarre idea, isn't it? And it actually shows our lack of understanding when it comes to seeing our own spiritual state without Christ, without Jesus, and just how bleak it actually is. Whether we seem to be living a morally acceptable life within the culture of our day or not isn't really the question. The question is, are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Are you believing in Jesus? And so today's passage reminds us that it isn't just those who look like a Nicodemus figure. Remember him from chapter three? Religious, pretty moral, pretty respectable. Now, it's not just religious figures who could end up in the kingdom, but someone like a Samaritan woman, she too could also end up in the kingdom, depending on how she will respond to Jesus. That's the key. And that should fill us with hope. It should fill us with hope if maybe there's people in your family who do not believe and they seem very far from God, and we might be tempted to think, well, they could never believe. They could never find themselves in the kingdom of God. Well, that fills us with hope, doesn't it? We can pray because God's the one who's able to bring about that change. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, boy, that is good news for me. Because Jeff, if you knew my story, well, I might be tempted to think myself that there was no hope. Well, this is a story that gives us hope because it shows us the type of people that might end up in the kingdom. The reality is that for all of us, every single believer and those who aren't, the only way into the kingdom is if God has done something in our hearts, bringing us to life. So it doesn't really matter how aggressive your rejection has been to him. It doesn't really matter about the checkered history that you've had in your past, or maybe the warped and misplaced worship. Well, if you weren't a Christian, that's exactly the story of everyone's life. They need a change to happen, and it's something that God must bring about. But it's possible. Let's jump into today's story um, at the start of of, uh, chapter four. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. I don't know if you've been picking this up, but in John's gospel, there's lots and lots of talk about John, okay? Not the John who wrote the the gospel, but John the Baptist. There's so much talk about John the Baptist and about his witness to Jesus. We seem to talk about it week after week after week, John's witness to Jesus. He's to be a forerunner to Jesus, and you might remember that, um, that John had been causing a bit of a, a stir with the religious establishment of the day. If you flick back to chapter 1, verse 19, you see that there was a delegation came down from Jerusalem to see what was happening with John's ministry. All the people were coming to John and the religious establishment of the day. They were not happy. Do you see that? Do you spot that? Well, these verses at the start of John 4 tell us that Jesus is now making and baptizing more disciples than John. And if John's baptism back then was making making headline news and hadn't gone unnoticed, well, it's no surprise then that the focus of the Pharisees has now shifted onto that of Jesus. 
and his ministry. Now, technically, Jesus didn't actually do any baptizing himself, we're told that, but rather it was his disciples who did the baptizing. But as you looked at these two figures, John and Jesus, they were kind of the, they were the head of the ministry. And as you looked at the two, you've seen John's over here, you've seen Jesus is over here, and you started to say, okay, there's a movement. Everyone's moving over here. Now, it's really natural, isn't it? Because what John came to do was he came to witness to Jesus. And so if he's doing that, well, then what's going to happen is he's going to keep witnessing to people, and they're going to say, well, then I'm going to go and follow Jesus. We remember that with John's own disciples, don't we? They had already made the shift, some of them, over to following after Jesus. And so we read that at the start of chapter 4, and we think, well, why is Jesus then leaving? Why does he, he move away from where John is? Is it that Jesus doesn't want the, the two ministries to be seen as competing? Possibly. Is it that Jesus is now concerned for the safety of himself and his disciples? Well, we're going to see soon enough just what the religious leaders were capable of, so it could be that as well. We're, we're not actually given an explanation, are we? But we do know that he leaves. He leaves today and departed for Galilee. And then we're told in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, lots of ink has been spilt as to what might be going on here. It doesn't mean that he really had to, that he was in some way constrained to do so. He wanted to go another way, but he, no, he just felt like he had to go through there. Well, I think it's probably reading more into the text than it actually says. You see, for Jesus to travel from Judea to Galilee, the shortest and the easiest route was to go through Samaria. Now, yes, the Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get on. Okay, we already know that from the text, okay? And some Jews really disliked the Samaritans so much that, yes, they would have traveled away round, but it wasn't the norm. And so I think we're supposed to just see that this was the easiest route. It's a bit like heading off to Enniskillen. I used to live down in, in Fermanagh. And if you're heading off from here to Enniskillen, well, then... You're going to go through Ocker, Clocker, and Five Mile Town, okay? That's just, we all know the little rhyme, okay? We all know it, okay? Ocker, Clocker, Five Mile Town. And unless you really dislike the people who live there, sorry, I didn't think about that, yeah? Unless you really dislike the people who live there, okay, you're not going to go around. You could go around, but it just, it just, well, you know, it doesn't seem to make much sense. And so you'll travel, travel through Ocker, Clocker, and Five Mile Town. Well, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That was the, that was the way he was going. And so we're told that he comes to a town called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. And I want you to spot this again. I want you to spot the kind of details that John, the, the author of the gospel, continues to give us. The kind of details that only an eyewitness can actually give us. And they keep coming, detail after detail. This time he picks up on the details of how Jesus was actually feeling at this point. We're told that he was weary from his journey, another key detail. And we might be tempted just to think, well, okay, he's, he's weary from his journey, but that's, it's key. Why is it key? Well, it reminds us of the humanity of Christ. It reminds us of the humanity of Christ. Remember the, the words from the prologue? I've been so encouraged to hear that so many of you are memorizing the prologue of John's gospel, the, 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 the chunk at the start of John's gospel. I know many of you are doing that in your growth groups, and it's been great to hear that that's still happening. Maybe you've even got to this part. 
where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus actually became flesh, right? He actually became flesh, a man fully human, yes, but fully God also. And so like a man who walks from Judea to Samaria, he's a man who gets tired. Maybe you're here this morning and you are feeling tired. You are feeling exhausted. Well, Jesus felt weary. And so you have a savior who can sympathize with you this morning. Maybe you need to know that. You have a savior who can sympathize with you. Verse six, again, it kind of finishes in a typically John-like way because he looks at the clock and he tells us it's about the sixth hour. It's about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour, we don't really talk like that now, okay? Well, it was really noontime. They counted the the time from sunrise in the morning, so this is about noontime. And I want you to spot the contrast between the encounter that we've looked at with Nicodemus back in chapter three and here with this woman in chapter four. If you remember back to Nicodemus, when did he come to Jesus? Well, it was dark, wasn't it? When does this woman come to Jesus? Well, it's the complete opposite. It's noontime. It's the brightest part of the day. In fact, you'll maybe have spotted some of the the differences between Nicodemus and this woman already in the story. Listen to how the encounter happens. Verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is at the well, isn't he? He's at the well, and he meets this woman. And notice that we are never actually given this woman's name. Do you spot that? We're never actually given her name. We are told her religious background, though. She is a Samaritan woman. Now, the Samaritans didn't worship God in the way that he had told them to worship him. So they rejected much of scriptures, and actually they had mixed in lots of pagan worship rituals throughout, so that it was a very different faith. And so the, the Jews and the Samaritans, they kind of, you know, further and further apart. There was great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans by the time we reach this part of the story. It was a kind of them and us mentality, a great big divide where you might not want to meet the other side. I wonder, can you imagine living in a society where that might be the case? Well, Jews don't normally have anything to do with Samaritans. That's what we're told. And so what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing as he is the one who instigates this conversation with a woman and asks for a drink? You can imagine her surprise, maybe her shock, maybe even her horror as she thinks, what? You're speaking to me and you're asking me for a drink? How is she supposed to respond? Well, look at Jesus' response, he says, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, there's so many questions, isn't there? As we read this statement, we think, oh, there's lots of questions here. What's the gift of God? That's a good question, isn't it? Uh, who is this man at the well who's saying this? 
Uh, what's this living water? If you, were the, if you were the woman in this situation, those are the kind of questions you might have in your head, aren't they? But for us as the reader of John's gospel, well, we already know the answers, okay? We already know the answers. It's a bit like going into an exam. I remember that this happened once with one of my exams. I went in, and pretty much every question you were asked had come up on a past paper. And you just thought, this is great, okay? And then you did really well. And then that thought, well, I'll do the same next year. And then you get a U, and you think, ah, this didn't work this time. Well, this time we have the answers because we've read John's gospel already. What is the gift of God? Well, it's becoming a child of God. It's it's being welcomed into the kingdom of God. It's, it's eternal life. It's what John's gospel has talked about nonstop, basically, since the start. Who's this man at the well? The who that Jesus speaks of? Well, we know that Jesus is the word. He is God. He is the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the worthy one. He's the lamb of God. He's the word became flesh. We already know all of that. What's this? living water. Well, we know from chapter 3, don't we? Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's really another way of talking about the work of the Spirit of God that brings new life, eternal life in all of its fullness. And so as we read it, we're supposed to say, yes, we know the answers to these questions. We're supposed to get this. But the woman, at this point, she still doesn't get it. Because like Nicodemus, she doesn't pick up that Jesus is talking about spiritual things. No, no, no. She thinks he's talking about actual water. And so she responds and says, but Jesus, you don't have a bucket. How will you give me, how will you give me water? You don't even have a bucket. It's a basic thing if you're going to give me water. And then she asks if Jesus is greater than her ancestor Jacob. Now, we know that story as well, don't we? As we work through Genesis in the evening. And verse 12, presumably sarcastically, as if it is implied, well, of course you're not greater than Jacob. And yet the ironic thing is that he is indeed much, much, much greater than Jacob. In fact, he is the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how does Jesus respond? We'll look again, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman says, sir, give me this water. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And we see again that she doesn't get it, does she? She doesn't get it. She still thinks that Jesus is talking about satisfying a a, a physical thirst for water. But Jesus, again, in a somewhat veiled manner, yes, is speaking about spiritual things, isn't he? And notice that whatever Jesus is offering is different than everything else that's on offer. Because what Jesus is offering doesn't just satisfy for here and now, but it lasts for eternity. You see that? Boys and girls, I don't know if you've ever found this, you know, coming up to Christmas or coming up to your birthday, and there's this, there's this thing that you really want. Maybe it's this toy that you've been looking forward to, and you think, if I can only get this toy, then my life will be great. I will never want for anything again in all of my life. If I can only get that toy, then that is it. Maybe some of you adults know that feeling. <laughs> Whatever it might be, you're thinking, if only I can get that, well, then I will be content. 
then I will be happy. And yet, what happens, boys and girls? You get the toy, you get it out, you play with it for a few hours, and maybe even the next day, you think to yourself, there's another toy I'd like. (laughs) Yeah? Well, Jesus is offering something that actually satisfies, not just here and now, but right on in to eternity. Something that will last. Well, how does Jesus make this move? How does he get the woman to make the move from thinking about just the physical thirst to what he's really talking about, the spiritual condition? Well, it seems that Jesus moves to highlight another thirst that is in this woman's life. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Isn't it interesting how Jesus deals with individuals? With individuals. It seems that often the way Jesus seems to work is he comes alongside graciously, draws alongside an individual, and then he just pinpoints that one particular area of their life that needs exposed. Think of um, the rich young ruler in Mark 10. You maybe know that story. What does Jesus say to him? Well, here's a man who's rich. And what does Jesus say? Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And that was the one thing that this man did not want to give up. And so what does he do? He walks away from Jesus because Jesus had just put his thumb and pressed it on that one particular part of his life that he was not willing to treat in order to follow Jesus. And here's a woman, we're told that she's had five husbands. Now, we don't know all the details as to what has happened to them. Was it death? Was it divorce? Well, we're not, we're not sure. But it certainly seems that the text is pointing us to the fact that this woman has had a sinful past. We know that she's now sleeping with a man who, who is not her husband. Jesus comes along and he just presses in and exposes her sinfulness, doesn't he? Maybe the, the fact that she's here at the hottest part of the day collecting water, which is not normal, on her own rather than with a, a group of other ladies from the town. Maybe that's because she didn't want to see anyone else. Or maybe it's that nobody else really wanted to see her. So Jesus exposes her sin, yes. But by doing that, he also shines light. He really bright lights on his own identity. Because now that she can perceive that this guy that she's speaking to, well, there's something different about him, isn't there? She can see that he has supernatural knowledge. And so she responds, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's almost like she said, Jesus, okay, you've got my attention now. My, my ears, that they've, they've pricked up. I can see that you're not just talking about buckets and water and about all the stuff that splashes about. You're talking about something different. You're talking about spiritual things. And she moves a step closer in her understanding as to who Jesus is, doesn't she? She says, I see you're a prophet. And she still shows, falls short of, of recognizing him as the son of God, but she's made a move, hasn't she? He's no longer just an ordinary man who's, who's at the well. 
Uh, notice how the conversation now spins to talking about worship. Just glance down those verses because it seems like almost every other word at this point is worship, worship, worship. Do you spot it? It just comes up again and again and again and again. Because it seems that the woman, now that she recognizes that Jesus speaks from God, well, she has a question that she needs the answer to. And the question is, how do I worship God correctly? How do I worship God correctly? And rightly so, that is the right question to get right to. We've been thinking about this the last few weeks in Christian Explored, the identity of God and how he wants to be worshipped and how it's really important to get both of those right. And so she has a question. I see that you're a prophet, so clear this up. My fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews said that you must worship in Jerusalem. So Jesus, tell me, which is right? And Jesus addresses it. Well, he says the Jews are right, but, and this is another big but in John's gospel, we see it here in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those he worship must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what's Jesus really saying here? Well, he's saying to the woman, yes, the Jews were actually right. Okay, he clarifies that. God could only be worshipped in Jerusalem, but change is afoot. Change is afoot. God is bringing about a change where the physical temple in Jerusalem is no longer going to be the place where you need to go to meet with God. You know, the hour is coming and is now here. In other words, Jesus is already there, and he's soon going to the cross. That's the hour that's coming. And there's going to be no longer any need to go through a particular place, a temple. But rather, the temple is now going to be a particular person, a particular person, Jesus. And that would mean that worship wasn't going to be limited to one particular geographical location. No, you could worship God at any place right across the world. But the key to worshiping God, the key to it being true worship, proper worship, the worship that God would accept, would be that it would be through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what was going to be the key. It must be through the person of Jesus Christ as he is revealed in his word. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see, here's a woman who, who did know some of her Old Testament. Yes, her, her worship was, was muddled. The Samaritans rejected much of the scriptures at that point. But she knew this from Deuteronomy, that there was an expectation of the prophet to come. Remember, we, we thought about this earlier whenever, in John's gospel, whenever um, John the Baptist was being questioned as to who he actually was, are, are, you, are you the prophet? That was referenced back to Deuteronomy, wasn't it? Let me read that verse in Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Do you see the, the echoes of the same type of language? And what the, the Samaritan woman says, 
The prophet, the Messiah, he's going to come, yes, and he will answer all the questions. He will tell us all things. That's what she's saying. There's one who's going to come, and, and he's going to tell us all that. He'll speak the words of God. And you almost wonder at this point, was the woman, was she starting to think, this could be you? Are, are you the Messiah? Well, if she was, she doesn't have to wait for long, does she? Because Jesus responds really quite explicitly. He says this, I who speak to you am he. It's almost like Jesus is saying, I am. Does that sound familiar? I am. So this is almost like a mic drop moment. The woman is there and Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am God's promised king. I am the one who will save God's people. I am the one who will speak God's word because I am God. And that's where we're going to stop. That's where we're going to stop in the story really deliberately in the middle of the story because before we go on to look at the woman's response, I want you to think about your own response. As Jesus makes this huge claim, I am the Messiah. I am the one who can save God's people from their sin. I am the promised king. I am the forever king of God's forever kingdom. How do you respond? How do you respond this morning? Are you saying, yes, yes, I believe that, and I have put my trust in you? Or have you, like the Samaritans, come up with your own little workaround religion with the ways that you think God might like to be worshipped, a different way than through Jesus. I wonder, are you accepting Jesus as the Son of God? Are you believing in him? Have you received the eternal life that he puts on offer? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not unlike this Martin woman because you have been thirsting in all of the wrong places. You've been thirsting and looking for satisfaction and purpose and peace in all of the places that did not give it. Maybe as you look back, you think, yeah, some of them seem pretty ridiculous, like a cracker or like a towel or like salt. And all as they did was they emphasized just how little satisfaction they actually did give, how little in, in terms of lasting the impact really was. Well, Jesus says that he is the only way to worship God. He's the only way to be welcomed into God's family. He's the only way that you can become a child of God. He's the only way that you can experience eternal life. And so I've got a question. My question this morning is, are you still thirsty? Are you still thirsty? Or are you satisfied in him? Maybe you're here and you're a Christian this morning, and, and you are tempted. You are tempted again by, by some of the other things that the world puts on offer, and you're thinking, maybe, maybe I should head off by following some of those other things, some of those allures, some of those things that seem so tempting. Let me remind you this morning that what they offer is not eternal life, and they only seek to lead you away from Christ. Do not wonder from Christ and what he offers. So as we get to the end, who can get into the kingdom? Well, what type of people? People like the Samaritan woman, that type of person.
That's what Jesus shows us as he offers this woman eternal life. He shows us that the kingdom isn't just for trained theologians like Nicodemus, those with power or influence, not just for the squeaky clean moral history, those with a squeaky clean moral history. No, his kingdom is open to all as long as they are willing to trade their life for Christ's, to give themselves all over to him and to accept the eternal life that he offers. Are you thirsty? Well, then come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have created us with eternity in our hearts. We have this deep longing, and you tell us that it can only be satisfied in Christ. And so, Father, might that be each of our experiences this morning. Might we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who alone can bring us to the Father. Lord, would you be at work in each of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.